Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Kendall. Dr. Kendall is a senior research fellow in Arabic and Islamic studies at Oxford University's Pembroke College and an expert on Yemen and on jihadist movements. In October, she takes up her appointment as mistress of Girton College, Cambridge University. Liz, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be back. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, is Yemen the last redoubt, the last stronghold of Al-Qaeda globally? And if so, why and how has that come about? Well, it's certainly true that AQAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, is, is holding out in Yemen in one form or another. But I don't think I'd call it Al-Qaeda's last stronghold globally. There are other regions that worry me more at the moment. And I think top of my list of concerns are probably Somalia and parts of Africa. Now, I noticed that the the latest issue of Al-Qaeda's magazine, this is a glossy magazine, it's called Umma Wahida, it comes out periodically. It actually celebrated Ashabab on the front cover as the kind of poster boys of jihad. And, and I think that's right. It does aspire to take over Somalia and it's using the Afghanistan uh, example as, as a kind of model. Now, of course, there are many differences between Afghanistan and Somalia, but there's no doubt that Ashabab has got very strong traction at the moment and a high frequency of attacks and a really strong propaganda outfit. So, I mean, just to put this in perspective, US Africa Command currently estimates that Ashabab controls quite a lot of the South and of Central Somalia and has between five and 10,000 fighters. Now that's across a country of 15 million. In Yemen, the UN report that came out in July estimates that Al-Qaeda has a few thousand fighters. And I think that's high, I think that's a high estimate. And bear in mind that Yemen has a population double the size of Somalia, 30 million. So in relative terms, I'd be more worried about Somalia than I would about Yemen. I mean, maybe I should just add, there are, you know, there are definitely links between AQAP and Somalia. Um, I noticed that Ashabab had named one of its training camps after Qasim Aremi, who was the former emir of Al-Qaeda. They've got a library named after Anwar al-Awlaqi, who was a, a Yemeni-American uh, preacher of great repute. And of course, there's a, a steady a steady kind of flow of, of guns and fighters between Yemen and Somalia. So it's not that I'm saying Al-Qaeda in Yemen isn't a problem, not at all, it is. It's just, I don't think it's quite at the same threat level as some other areas. Mm. Now, now you said you thought the UN estimate of AQAP numbers was high. What's your thinking behind that? Yes, the UN report in July said a few thousand fighters. Now I'm not suggesting that that's wrong, but as ever, it depends on how you define AQAP. How do you define Al-Qaeda, especially in Yemen? The label has become very opaque. Now, I, I wrote about this for the Sentinel about a year ago. That's the, that's the journal of the Combating Terrorism Centre at West Point. And I laid out a typology of how what we call Al-Qaeda militants actually fall into six categories. So I'm not going to go over that again here. I think I also mentioned it in our own podcast a year ago. But I think it's important to ask, you know, what what happens if 
if you actually leave Al-Qaeda, join another militia, can you leave? Would you still be counted as Al-Qaeda? Would your whole new militia be counted as Al-Qaeda? What if your group splinters away from Al-Qaeda because you disagree with something? Or just because there's no command and control structure anymore? Or what if you're calling yourself Al-Qaeda just because you want to command a higher price as a gun for hire? And, you know, maybe most importantly, what is the line between being a member of Al-Qaeda and then simply using the group or fighting alongside it or sympathising with some of what it's doing? These are all really difficult questions. And I think that what we're seeing in Yemen is that Al-Qaeda has become aligned, closely aligned with different political and criminal groups. It's become less ideological, so it's even more difficult to define. And I think it's been heading in that direction since, probably since late 2017. You know, that was a year that saw a huge spike in the US drone campaign. And, and it's something that Al-Qaeda itself has been worried about. I remember a series of articles coming out by uh, an Al-Qaeda cleric, a scholar and a judge called Abu, Abu al-Bara al-Ibbi, and, and he was sounding the alert about the dilution of religious ideology in the group. He, he, he wrote this series called Reasons for the Setback. And some of his complaints were that they were becoming too obsessed with money, that people were self-interested and that there were splits in the group. Uh, and I remember in particular, he was saying that some of the younger guys in the group, they're now much more familiar with nasheeds, these kind of anthem songs, than they are with the Quran. So it's not surprising because, you know, they've, they've lost so many of their ideologues to the drone campaign. And that same campaign means it's really difficult for them to meet. So they can't receive spiritual guidance or training. They can't discuss ideology. They, they can't really talk shop generally because there's this massive danger of being droned. And they've got an internet ban on themselves for the same reason in place since since the end of 2019. And I think we're seeing a lot of these worries come to pass now. There have been recent kidnappings, which are very likely to be linked to Al-Qaeda. One of them in particular we know is because they just produced a video um, with one of the prisoners. So we've seen uh, kidnappings of UN officials back in February in the south of Yemen and of Médecins Sans Frontières officials, again, in the south of Yemen, in Hadramaut. And last year, we saw soldiers being kidnapped. Now, there's no ideological propaganda that goes along with any of this. So that suggests political or financial motives. There's nothing religious about it. Mm. Yeah, and is it the case, too, that the, the person, the Al-Qaeda person handling the finances has, was droned and hasn't been replaced? I think there are so many of their key leaders who've been droned and they are difficult to replace now because even though you can find those willing to step into the shoes of leaders who've been droned, they're, they're not the same calibre anymore. They're, they're lacking experience. We're not having any of the old veterans. And so the movement really is, is, is coming apart at the seams and that makes it much more difficult not only to define but also to track and to keep an eye on. Mm. Now we have this truce which began in the spring. It's been extended several times. I'm just wondering, as you've described, AQAP is in disarray, but would they be using the truce to kind of attempt to strengthen its position? Yes, I think that's 
definitely right. Uh, I, I think at the end of our last podcast, I actually gave a warning that a truce or peace could be the most dangerous time. And yes, while on the surface a truce is a very positive development for Yemen, it does present an opportunity for militant jihad groups like al-Qaeda in, in, a, in a couple of ways, because they can align with the various factions who, who don't want to lay down their arms, who, who don't want to adhere to the truce. So al-Qaeda, it, it benefits because it can absorb those individuals who just want to carry on fighting, but it can also act as a proxy for some of the more mainstream actors in the war who want to look like they're adhering to the truce and so they use a different instrument to carry out the attacks that they don't want to be seen to carry out. Now, I'm, I think the evidence points in different directions here. Um, it's entirely plausible that different splinters or factions of al-Qaeda work with different groups on the ground, especially given that the war dynamics are constantly evolving. There's a lot of fluid loyalty on the ground and you know that al-Qaeda has splintered. I mean, one example of that would be in June, there was uh, a big attack in Abyan in the south that was blamed on al-Qaeda. And al-Qaeda actually came out with a statement saying, actually, it, this wasn't us, at least not officially. And they blamed it on rogue elements inside their group. So that, that's evidence of the kind of splintering that's going on. Uh, perhaps I should just add, there was a, because there was a very big attack this last week in, also in Abyan, and about 20 southern security forces were killed and many more injured. And that's also been blamed on al-Qaeda, although they haven't acknowledged it, they haven't claimed it. And it, it's so difficult to know who's doing what. Photos circulated of six dead militants, one of whom was wearing an al-Qaeda t-shirt, which, which really rings all the alarm bells. I mean, when have we heard of al-Qaeda printing t-shirts for its militants to wear? So this is one of the problems because even if fake news, especially in Yemen, seems really obvious, that doesn't mean we can just dismiss it either because it can always, it can always just be that uh, a support group is trying to help along the facts a little. So it could still have been an Al-Qaeda attack just with a few fake elements added into it. This is why it's so difficult. Mm. But would they normally claim credit for such an attack or, or not? Well, in the past, typically they would claim credit and maybe they still will. It's only been a few days, but so much is changing now that I don't want to build my understanding of how the group is going forward on how the group was in the past. What I think we can take away is that Al-Qaeda lacks strong internal leadership at the moment. And so it may be being led by outsiders. Um, it may be blending with other groups and militias. What we can't take away, I think, is that just because it's not claiming things, it's inactive, or that it's somehow not involved in what's going on. Mm. I wanted to um, ask you about the killing of Ayman al-Zahawari, uh, the leader who'd been living and hiding for years, uh, and what impact that has had on AQAP. Uh, obviously not involved in day-to-day -day operations. Uh, he did post some videos. 
as you've noted. Uh, but does removing him affect a QAP in any material way? Yes, good question. So, so just to remind listeners, Ayman Zawahiri was, was killed by a US drone strike at the very end of July in Afghanistan, actually, where he was apparently living in an apartment with members of his family in Kabul. Um, and he's been the global leader of al-Qaeda for just over a decade since Osama bin Laden was killed in 2011. Now, some of us wondered, actually, whether the United States was keeping him in place for the past decade on purpose, because he was such a damp rag compared with Osama. His lectures were they droned on. I mean, you say he produced lots of videos. He did, but he wasn't exactly on fire. And and most importantly, he, he didn't really have much room for manoeuvre because he's so recognisable and he had a $25 million bounty on his head. So he was ideal to keep in place, really. He, Zawahiri was what helped to keep al-Qaeda stale. But um, you know, does his death impact AQAP? There's no doubt that he had respect. He... He, Zawahiri, you know, he had visited Yemen several times in the 1990s. And his brother, Mohammed, actually lived in Yemen for a while uh, at the time when jihadis had to flee Egypt in the 1990s. So Yemen was their safe haven. And he had a lot of credibility, not just as, as a religious scholar, but, you know, he was, he was a very prolific author. He was a medical doctor. He was even a poet. And, uh, and of course, he'd, he'd endured imprisonment. He'd been tortured. And he had a decades-long commitment to the cause. So, so he definitely had traction within the movement. And, and it's worth pointing out that when rifts started to emerge inside AQAP in 2019, both of the sides agreed to defer to Zawahiri as the ultimate arbiter. So, so that shows that he is highly respected, even though, by the way, I don't think they managed to reach him. Um, but... All of that said, I think in reality, the Wahiri's loss doesn't make a great deal of difference because like most Al-Qaeda branches now, the Yemen branch and its various splinters, they, they just go their own way and they have done for a long time. There's, there's really no central command and control inside Yemen, let alone from outside Yemen. So, you know, on that basis, I'd say that the Wahiri's death is it's more of a symbolic blow than it is an operational one. Mm. Um, can I take you back to that UN report that uh, came out in July? Mm. Highlighted um, what, what some, and indeed I did find a curious fact, uh, though the Houthis uh, are the main target of AQAP attacks, uh, main target rather of AQAP attacks, the two sides have collaborated on occasion with AQAP even reported to be providing training to the Houthis. And I suppose it shows the utterly tangled and complex nature of the Yemen conflict. You've talked about the fluidity of the situation. Unfair question, Liz, but can I ask you to try and untangle this one aspect? Hmm. Yes. <laughs> so it does seem really contradictory, doesn't it? Why would it be that these two arch enemies, the Houthis, with their uh, somewhat Shi Shiite beliefs and their sworn... They're sort of sworn enemies, Al-Qaeda with their militant, radical Sunni Salafi jihadi beliefs. How could they possibly collaborate? But this is actually something that researchers have suspected for a long time. So the UN report does give the idea some weight. And I think the first way to untangle this, the first point to be made, is to remember that 
parties in the war, all of them, including the Houthis and Al-Qaeda, they are not completely coherent units. Each party contains factions and each party has a scale. There are hardliners at one end of the scale and moderates at the other. You can think of it a bit like the Taliban in Afghanistan. You know, there are those who talk a good game about women's rights and modernization, and there are those who hold far more radical views, which are unchanged from the 1990s. It's, it's the same in Yemen. So I think that it's possible that a faction within the Houthis is making common cause with a faction within AQAP. Needs must, you know, these are tricky times. And there is a history of pragmatic collaboration, pragmatic, I'd stress that, between the Houthis and Al-Qaeda. It goes back to the 1990s. That's the time when Ibrahim al-Banna, uh, who is currently, if he's still alive, Al-Qaeda's head of security, you know, he's been around for decades. He was building networks, which included the Houthis back in the 1990s. So they were collaborating over things like providing shelter, providing safe houses, facilitating movement and travel. These are very practical matters. So it's quite possible that that has moved on into enterprises like joint training, joint operations. And we know they've certainly conducted prisoner swaps. I remember one of Al-Qaeda's support channels online posted photos of one back in January 2021. And, and there's been a whole series of videos posted by Al-Qaeda of Houthi captives um, issuing pleas for release. Now, now, they wouldn't be doing that unless they were looking for some kind of deal with the Houthis. Um, although, again, I should point out that these videos came out um, in an Ansar al-Sharia channel, not with the official Malahim site. So that supports the idea of, of factions operating within Al-Qaeda. So um, to cut a long story short, I think what's happening is that both Al-Qaeda and the Houthis are pragmatic, that they are able to work together at a practical level when it suits them both. So that doesn't mean that they cooperate on everything. It doesn't mean that they're allies. It doesn't mean that they're friends. This is a practical, this is a practical collaboration. It's not ideological. Yeah, and again, it just speaks to the complexity, the devilish complexity of, the, of that war. Uh, you know uh, uh, Al-Qaeda propaganda very well you you followed very closely aqap as you said has been downgraded militarily primarily by the drone strikes well, what about the propaganda side you mentioned the very slick magazine is it still an effective weapon for aqap yeah i i think it is still an effective weapon but it's not as effective as it was some of the statements it puts out are perhaps effective if they're disseminated in a widespread enough nature. For example, there was a very strong statement in April that absolutely slammed the new governing presidential leadership council, really stirred up fears about that. And there was a, a message just a couple of weeks ago to people in the South, a long audio message that called for an uprising against the Southern separatists who were backed by the United Arab Emirates. That stuff could be quite powerful. But I think I probably disagree with the United Nations terrorism report in July that called Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula the strongest propaganda outfit. In terms of its, its you know, more 
more propagandist material, the videos and the Nasheeds, it's actually pretty weak at the moment. Most of the video outputs, it's old archival footage, it's just being spliced into new products. And the Nasheeds are not coming out, these are the anthems, that the very sing-along anthems that they they issue. They're not coming out regularly. They're, actually, there hadn't been any at all on the official wire for 10 months until July when they released 14 tracks all at once. I, 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 I think of it a bit like a summer album. Um, and of course, there are also quite a few ideological books that are being published by Al-Qaeda uh, authors in Yemen, but they're not on the former wire and they're, they're quite heavyweights. You know, they're not going to set the youth on fire. So I think I'd, I think I'd be safe in saying that other outfits like Ashabab in Somalia now have stronger media output. Mm, interesting. Uh, AQAP, do you think they will aim for a major operation, a kind of a statement to reestablish their credibility? And, and if they do, would the likely target be uh, an attack on shipping, given Yemen's uh, strategic position? Yes, I think that this is definitely an aspiration. Now, whether it's likely, well, that all depends. So it hasn't had a, a major headline-grabbing international operation for, for a long time now, not since claiming its links to the Saudi shooter, which was at the Pensacola Naval Base in Florida in 2019. But its aspiration is high, very high. Capability, probably low. And that's why I would agree with you that I think a maritime attack is the most likely. Because, yeah, number one, it's accessible. Um, the sea is, is really the only international target that's left within practical reach. And Yemen has a coastline of about 2,000 kilometres, and it's notoriously difficult to police. And second, it's got a lot of experience in this area. In 2000, there were two attacks on the USS, the Sullivans and the USS Cole. The former one wasn't successful, the latter was in Al-Qaeda terms, very successful. 2002, there was an attack on the French oil tanker, the Limburg. So, you know, it can learn from these. And, and I think third, they're still singing about maritime attacks in their Nasheeds. They're still writing about it, reciting about in, in their poems. So this is the stuff of folklore. And there's definitely evidence that they might have been trying. In 2020, there were at least four unexplained instances where where small skiffs made what I would call aggressive approaches to ships. And these were ships off the south coast of Yemen. Bear in mind that the Houthis, when they've been attacking ships, they normally do so off the west coast of Yemen. And I think, lastly, they you know, they know the effects of such an attack. It would be worldwide media attention, it would disrupt international shipping, and right now it would spike the oil price at a time when the west is already hurting with the high oil price. So. There's, there's a lot going for an attack like this in their minds. We haven't uh, mentioned ISIL Yemen, otherwise known as Daesh. Um, is it, uh, to put it in poker parlance, a busted flush, or is that a reckless assumption to make? Well, I mean, again, I think we need to be wary of the ISIS label, the, uh, the Islamic State label. It's actually useful for several of the parties in the conflict to have this idea of the Islamic State of Yemen floating around, um, you know, whether it's a genuine entity that they can then instrumentalize for their own ends or whether it's a fake entity that they can then blame 
for their own politically motivated attacks. So we have to be quite careful when, when the attacks of Islamic State in Yemen are, are spoken about in the press. So for two years, we really haven't heard much from Islamic State in Yemen since 2020. Um, and that was when the Houthis conducted a sweeping counterterrorism operation in a central governorate called Al Baidar, which was an ISIS stronghold in, in Yemen. Uh, when I say counterterrorism, that was how the Houthis pitched it. Obviously, it was quite a good pretext for them to overrun this uh, key strategic governorate. And the suspicion is that they may have actually coordinated with the group that was calling itself ISIS in Yemen. But anyway, that said, for about two years following that, there were pretty much unheard of. But we have had glimpses this year of some kind of residual group. There was a small group that pledged allegiance in Yemen in March, just nine of them. They were pledging allegiance to the new ISIS caliph. And then in July, ISIS claimed a suicide operation against the Houthis. And that was the first operation that they'd claimed uh, for, for about two years. Now, you know, there were several fishy elements about that operation. There weren't any local reports of it. Uh, so, you know, I, I think we need to take it with a pinch of salt. And maybe just to sum up, I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think there's a major threat right now in Yemen from an Islamic State comeback. But I, but I would be wary of, of writing it off completely. Now, finally, Liz, Al-Qaeda thrives on disorder within failed states. It therefore has no interest in a peace other than one it would impose. So how much of a threat is AQAP to efforts to finally bring peace to Yemen? Well, I think the key there is in your question itself. I, when you say Al-Qaeda thrives in failed states, yes, it does. And Yemen, despite the current truce, is, is heading towards more of an unravelling, I believe. And there are three elements here. There's the humanitarian crisis. That is not going away. It's getting worse. Second element is the truce. The truce does not mean that the war has stopped. It's just on pause. And that pause button keeps flipping off. It's going to be very hard to hold on to this truce, let alone roll it out into a more permanent ceasefire and a peace process. And then three, international interest is waning. Politically, the focus is now on Ukraine, on the war there, and on domestic political battles in the UK and the US. There's just no bandwidth. And financially, I think there's lots of competition for resources. We've got climate change, inflation, cost of living crisis, a looming recession. So there's every reason for Al-Qaeda to take off again. But, you know, I wouldn't say it's the biggest threat to peace in Yemen, not by a long way. There are so many threats to peace in Yemen. But, um, you know, that said, I think that it also serves some of the conflict parties in Yemen to keep the idea of Al-Qaeda alive you know, to keep the idea that this is still a coherent group with a coherent command structure, that, that serves all sorts of politically and commercially motivated agendas. It means that certain manoeuvres can be justified as a war on terror, whereas, you know, in reality, they might be politically motivated. It enables people to label their enemies as terrorists. And 
I think what we're seeing in Yemen right now is that there's a real danger of the war fragmenting in the South and everyone claims to be fighting terrorists. And the big losers in this right now are a party called Islah. This is Yemen's version of the Muslim Brotherhood. It's the closest thing that Yemen has to the Muslim Brotherhood, though it's not exactly the same thing. And you know, if we look at this crackdown on the Islah party, you can see it in two ways. On the one hand, it could remove an important partner for Al-Qaeda. But on the other hand, it could remove the only safety valve that more radical Islamists have for expressing their views. It removes a legitimate opposition. And so it could actually empower Al-Qaeda because it becomes the only game in town. So I'm actually really worried about the direction in which things are heading. And I think if I had to predict, I think that things are going to hot up in Yemen now. The overall conflict is shifting. Until now, it's been mainly a war about taking back control of the north from the Houthis. But going forward, I would say it's going to be more about who has control of the south. And that's going to put great pressure on the anti-Houthi coalition, on the new presidential leadership council. The southern separatist forces are flexing their muscles and I think there could be conflict to come. And the next hotspots to watch out for are actually in the southeast of Yemen. I think they're the Wadi Hadramaut and Al-Mahra. So, so that's definitely an opportunity for Al-Qaeda to make a bit more of a comeback. Fascinating, Liz. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Dr. Elizabeth Kendall, a senior research fellow in Arabic and Islamic studies at Oxford University's Pembroke College and an expert on Yemen and the jihadist movements. Since we launched our podcast in 2020, it's been listened to 90,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners, and if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Amazon, and other platforms. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, contributors like Dr. Kendall. If you'd like a free trial of the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. If you are a student or academic, ask your university library if it has an Arab Digest subscription. If so, you can access the Digest for free. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.